Marini's Media. Totally Football Show Summer Special today. Surge and Destroy Surge Engine, most popular surge since why didn't Pulis use him at the baggies? Ganabri Ganabza Brace as Bayern take their place in Sunday's final with PSG. We review Wednesday's action and look ahead to Friday's Europa League final as Sevilla take on Inter. And also starting Friday, more glaring misses in the Women's Champions League Final 8. We take a look at who's who in this Totally Football Show Summer Special in association with Paddy Power. Thursday the 20th of August. And you join us fresh from Bayern's 3-0 win over Lyon. It's Daniel Story with us today. Hi, Daniel. Hi, James. And also along, James Horncastle. Hello. Nice to see you both. Colin Miller should be dialing in very shortly to discuss Friday's Europa League final. And also we'll be hearing from Katie Wyatt about the final eight of the Women's Champions League, which starts on Friday. But first of all, we want to get all up in that Champions League semi-final at the Jose Alvalade in Lisbon, Bayern Munich with another mighty win. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, take out a 30-day trial to see their unrivaled coverage of each and every Premier League club by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Tour of Nabry. Well, it was a magnificent goal in all fairness. One of the two that he scored. Uh, the other goal coming from uh, Robert Lewandowski, who also never played a minute under Tony Pulis. That was uh, Lewandowski's 55th of the season, of course, as Bayern notched up their 10th straight victory, breaking their semi-final curse. They'd have been to four straight semis without making it through, etc., etc. But how about this Bayern then? Still winning, still playing that high line, still giving up chances, but we're still waiting for a side to make them pay for it. Yeah, and I thought whilst watching this game tonight that um, Bayern won't win the Champions League playing that way. Um, just because you look at that high line that they have, you look at who they're coming up against, and I suspect that uh, Kylian Mbappe in particular will will think that he can get it by. And the scoreline was the same as the other semi-final, but I don't think it was... Uh, it didn't tell the same story um, because I think whereas RB Leipzig didn't really lay a glove on on, on Paris Saint-Germain, I think Nabry's goal came against the run of play. It was a, it was a very poor start uh, from Bayern. They kept giving the ball away, allowing Lyon to counter. I think if Memphis Depay looks up uh, when he was put through on goal and goes around Neuer... Um, he maybe puts that shot on target rather than into the side netting. Um, they obviously hit the post just moments before uh, Gnabry's uh, opener, which was a sensational piece of individual skill, ambidexterity, strength, um, magnificent, really. But you know, you could. I think the the big takeaway from tonight was that um, you know Bayern are vulnerable, um, and you know if there's a if there's a team you don't want to come up against when you've got a vulnerable kind of back line like they have, I think it's it's Paris Saint-Germain. Still, they play like that all the time and they've only been behind, as you were pointing out, Daniel, for 22 minutes in all this calendar year. There you go, a calendar year stat. We were talking about these yesterday. Yeah, and I mean, that, I think that's a slightly double-edged statistic and was kind of meant as so because 
Um, yes, it indicates that they've had a huge amount of dominance, particularly in Germany, which is no surprise. They've managed to replicate that in the Champions League this season, it should be said. But there are benefits to to having gone behind and fought back. We said this about Manchester City, that their biggest weakness is an, a, a kind of a, an inability to come from behind, to, to react to conceding early goals. And Bayern have been fortunate both against Lyon, but also against Barcelona not to have been behind. And it will be interesting to see what happens if that does happen, particularly against PSG, whose defence has been far, far better in, in the Champions League this season than in recent years. I mean, it should be a brilliant final, but it will be especially so if PSG score the first goal early and Bayern kind of have to come out and um, and attack them more because then it will be kind of basketball football, I think. You know, you have a go and we'll have a go. Serge Nabry tonight, that amazing individual goal that you were uh, citing there, uh, James, where he fought off, it cuts inside from the right, holds off three or four Leon players, and then unleashes with his weaker foot that unstoppable strike into the top <laughs> left corner. Yeah, because uh, when he is cutting inside, he's doing it uh, what entirely on his his right foot. He's using his body to kind of protect himself from the challenges that are coming in, rides those challenges, and then just unleashes that left foot shot. And it, I think that it didn't. I don't think it took the wind out of Leon's sails because they they kept creating. But the timing of it, I think, was was exactly what Bayern needed. Obviously, um, to get yourself a goal in front is what they would have wanted anyway. But I think for it to happen at that moment when people, I think you were beginning to get some doubts really about whether what we'd seen from Leon against Juventus and uh, in the last round against Man City was going to happen all over again because it did it did feel in those first fifteen twenty minutes. Um, that they'd created more chances than you were probably going to expect them mm. to create um, against they, against Bayern. They they did look the the likely to score. I did feel like it it took the wind out of their sails. It seemed like the belief had suddenly evaporated once Bayern were able to just score that goal seemingly so easily out of nowhere. Yeah, but I, I think uh, in the in the second half they started that I thought quite well um, again. You have a situation where Neuer has to make um, a very good save. At the end of the first half, it felt quite deflated because uh, the 2-0 scoreline, I think, you know, despite being reflective of uh, Bayern as a team that just has more talent um, uh, than Lyon, um, wasn't necessarily reflective of the balance, the, the balance of play. I, I felt Bayern, were all, Bayern, after they got in front, seemed quite comfortable whilst giving up chances. Um, I think uh, ultimately the, the 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 bizarre thing about this Bayern side is is that um, you know we look at those numbers Lewandowski is posting at the moment we, we we celebrate Gnabry and also Alfonso Davis who tonight stood out because of his recovery runs which allow them to play that high line he made two runs which um, you know again kind of led to the debate that how can Bayern play this high. Um, when teams seem to be able to keep getting behind them and they can play it that high because even before you get to Manuel Neuer, the likelihood is that Alfonso Davis will catch you up. The problem with that is is if you've got PSG and you've got someone like Kylian Mbappe on the other side, then yeah, that's going to be the biggest challenge um, to, to that kind of tactic that I think Bayern have faced so far in this competition. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about, about Alfonso Davis this evening. I thought he was one of, if not the, the best player on the pitch, maybe uh, David Alaba was 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 better than him. But this is a kid who's who's nineteen years old, who you know less than two years ago was playing as a left winger for Vancouver Whitecaps, 
And the most astonishing thing about him is that when you watch him, you completely forget how old he is. You know, he, he's marauding up the pitch. His recovery pace is, as James mentions, is astonishing. So he gets him out of so many problems. But there's just such a maturity to his game. He seems to know the right runs to make. It, it will be really interesting what happens next season when Leroy Sané is there. Because at the moment, even Perisic is really happy to nominally start on the left and drift inside and let basically let Davies have the whole flank. That's not quite what we expect from Leroy Sané. So that will be interesting, but potentially could become the youngest ever defender to win the Champions League, which is all European Cup, you know, in the, in the whole history of the competition, which is extraordinary given where he was two years ago. Just returning to Serge Gnabry, of course, got the, the second goal as well, which the final part was a tap-in, but he actually set the whole thing up with another run-in from the right and, and a very finely timed pass as well. Uh, at which point, Daniel, you were tweeting, oh dear, Tony Pulis is going to trend again. The backstory to all of that, beyond the bants, and there was a lovely moment actually when Tony Pulis was doing a show on the night when Nabry scored four, <laughs> four goals against uh, Spurs. You could knock me over with a feather, having um, worked with him at West Brom and, and seen him there. To what he's done is just absolutely amazing. And I'm, yeah, when, pe- when people show what they can really do and really knuckle down, and become so good as he's done. You know, it's absolutely fantastic. But he said basically, yeah, he wasn't ready. And it it can happen. You you make the point that if anyone should be questioning themselves, it should be Arsenal for letting him go for five million. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it was a it was a player led decision. You know, he'd had a serious injury in, in 2013-14, um, was then loaned out by Arsenal, and I think Arsenal's first two mistakes were made at that point firstly not making him sign a new deal before loaning him out and secondly loaning him out to a manager who um, any Arsenal fan could have predicted probably wouldn't have much use for this lightweight winger and indeed played Craig Gardner on the right wing instead of him in some matches Um, that didn't work out you can blame Pulis a little bit for that but then at that point Gnabry came back and thought well I'm not going to get a go here and Arsenal he only had one year left on his contract. Maybe Arsenal could have foregone a very effectively a nominal fee in five million and said, well, we'll try and keep you and try and prove to you that we want you. But it kind of worked out for all parties at that point. I don't think anyone at that at that time can can say hand on heart that they saw this Serge Gnabry coming this quickly from that moment. They liked him at Arsenal. They thought he had a huge talent in the academy, but they hadn't quite seen enough. And with the injury history, there was a sort of sense that it worked out for all parties. Hindsight clearly paints that very differently. I mean, a, a, another thing about Bayern is that, you know, we have this, um, uh, I think, uh, spot on perception of them as being, you know, one of the super clubs. You only have to look how much money that they make um, to to see that. But at, at the same time, you know, Lewandowski was a free transfer, the most expensive free transfer of all time. Let's uh, Let's not forget. Um, and Nabry, I think, cost eight million, and then they have the courage um, to, you know, look at what Alphonso Davis was doing in in Canada with what Vancouver Whitecaps, and think, yeah, we'll have a bit of that. When I think some other, some other, there was that quote from Histro Stoichkov, who'd I think been asked about his opinion of Davies from Barcelona, and he was like, ah, come on, he's Canadian. It's not, it's not he's not going to amount to anything. Um, so you know, f- for all Bayern can go out and spend what they have done on on Leroy Sane and others. Um, yeah, the the three kind of match winners tonight um, ultimately cost them very little. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Through they go to their eleventh Champions League or European Cup final, 
And they haven't won it since... When did they last win it? 2013? yeah. yeah. Treble winning year, of course. Uh, we salute Leon, who uh, have overperformed or outperformed expectations quite admirably. Did anybody catch your eye, particularly from Ligon this evening? Rudy Garcia. I mean, uh, again, I've... <laughs> I thought Rudy had kind of blown his big opportunity, really. Uh, you know, after uh, yeah, doing something rather remarkable with Lille, and, yeah, leading them to a double for the first time since the 50s, and to then going and having a very good first season at Roma, he won his first 10 league games, which was also the the year when Juventus under Conte went out in the group stage of the Champions League. Um, and I think a lot of that was down to Conte being worried that they weren't going to be able to retain their title because of what? Garcia was doing uh, with Roma I think to see him bounce back and the way he's kind of evolved as a manager look at, yeah, look, you look at the the way he set that uh, Leon side it's up it's completely different from how some of his other teams have played it's been effective um, and yeah I think in some respects he's, he's, he's gone a long way to restoring his reputation as being a uh, as being a pretty good manager and helped uh, French football's reputation a bit as well. I was thinking about the players as well. Cheeky Ryan Cherky, uh, uh, for example, mm. and Hatsou yeah, Amboire. The, the multi-million pound question, which I think Jules mentioned the other day on the show, is is that without European football now, and that's guaranteed because the only way they could get back into it was by winning the Champions League, it's whether they can keep Memphis Depay, Hassan Amboire, even Ryan Cherky, because... You know, there's no secret to Leon anymore. One of the the guarantees of playing latter stage knockout football in the Champions League is that those players who step up on that stage instantly tell big clubs that they can handle the pressure, and that makes them infinitely more attractive as transfer options. Yeah, he became only the fourth seventeen-year-old uh, to play in a Champions League semi-final after wow. Bojan, David Alaba, and Julian Draxler. Of course, yeah. interesting. Of course, yeah. Very nice. If you were DSing for Forest, for example, Daniel, which would you be plucking from uh, the Group Armour Stadium? Uh, Awa looks the one who can adapt to the pace of a game or adapt to the tempo of a game. Kind of, He doesn't just go at one pace. Sometimes with young players, I think they look brilliant in some games because they manage to click into the pace of it straight away and control that tempo. I'm thinking, like, for example, Billy Gilmore at Chelsea last season. And then in other games, they, they look completely lost and get taken off at half-time. He's the one that looks like he can adapt to the to the game. Um, and he's that little bit older than someone like Shirky. So he is... He, he may well think, or his agent may well think, he is ready for that next step up. Hmm. All right. And do you agree with uh, James's prediction that PSG are going to smash Bayern? Like, <laughs> I, I didn't say that. Your words, James, your words. <laughs> Not my words. Bayern was still my pick, but yeah, go for it. I will, um, yeah, I'll semi-sit on the fence by saying I think the team that scores the first goal wins the final. Mm. I think if PSG score first and Bayern trail for the first time in an age then they might get picked off on the break. Yeah, PSG, seven clean sheets in 10 Champions League games this season. How many goals have Bayern conceded? A few, actually. That's the thing about their big wins in the Champions League last season, is that they conceded two goals in each of them. So This season? They're almost, uh, yeah, against Spurs 7-2 and against Barcelona 8-2. It's almost this Kevin Keegan-esque football of we're going to play so high because we'll back ourselves to take more chances than you and create more chances than you. Eight goals, PSG have conceded half as many, four um, seven clean sheets to Bayern's five, James. So mm. a bit more convincing at the back, particularly with Marquinhos in front of that back two 
if you like, mm. the, uh, of uh, what Kimpembe and uh, a reborn Thiago Silva. Indeed. That game coming up Sunday evening. Friday evening, it's the Europa League final, and that's what we're discussing next. The Premier League season is over, and any other summer, footballers would be heading off to sun themselves on a yacht in the Mediterranean. This year, they're all enjoying themselves in England. Oi, get that thing out of the way and put a top on. This ain't Saint-Tropez, it's Grimsby. Ah, the Monaco of the North. So spare a thought for those footballers still hard at work in Europe. To support them in their plight, Paddy Power are giving money back as cash on all markets if Inter Milan beats Sevilla in 90 minutes. This match only, online exclusive, £10, max cash refund, pre-match singles only, 18plusbegambleaware.org. This is the Totally Summer Special by the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Woof, the Europa League theme, Mark 2. James, you were discussing this on the Football Clichés pod the other day with uh, Adam Hurry, Mr. Football Clichés. Yeah, because I think this is an underrated piece of music. Um, you know, you, when you interview young players, they tend to mm. say that, you know, I get goosebumps uh, hearing the Champions League anthem. You know, it's something that I've always aspired to walk out to and listen, and it just gives me, gives me the chills. Well, I think there's no reason why that can't be the same with the Europa League anthem as well. There's one reason, and it's the Europa League itself. But it is a catchy (laughs) tune. You described it as being a bit Dothraki. Yeah, no, it does feel like, um, uh, yeah, sort of Cal Drogo, sort of, uh, no, rampaging across the the plains. Coming from somebody with distinct Cal Drogo stylings (laughs) yourself, I'm going to believe you on that. But anyway, uh, that's the theme that will be ringing out on Friday evening as... 421 days after the tournament actually started, the Europa League comes to a conclusion at the Ryan Energy Stadion in Cologne. The final, and it's a proper one, is Sevilla against Inter, the first ever competitive meeting between these two clubs. We're joined for our look ahead at that match by a frying pan uh, brain of Spain, Colin Miller. Thanks for joining us, Colin. Uh, looking forward to this game on Friday. So Sevilla put out the favourites, Man United, and Inter blew Shakhtar away. What happens next? That's the million-dollar question. And again, Sevilla, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy whereby they just continue to win in the Europa League. And again, it's unlike every other team that Sevilla have won in the Europa League. You know, this is a this is a group of players who are only put together this season and to the current crop of have won it before Jesus Navas and Ever Benega but they both won it in separate spells they both left the club subsequently and returned so yeah it's um can they do it again against Inter uh, on Friday it's a really tough question because Inter are like Sevilla they're a team in really good form they're two teams who play with quite a lot of intensity who are really tough to beat and are really difficult to break down and I think it's going to be a really interesting tactical battle as well because obviously we all know why Antonio Conte loves his 3-5-2 formation, the use of the wing-backs and the rules of uh, Lazaro Martinez and Romelu Lukaku, how, how they're going to get on in this game because Sevilla play a flat back four, but Jesus Navas and Sergio Reguillon, they, they usually press right up the pitch. So it's going to be interesting to see if Inter can exploit any space in behind that they leave. But I think, again, Inter are probably favourites on paper, but Sevilla have just had so much success in this competition. And, and, and we saw it against Manchester United, that even when they're under immense pressure, they can usually pull something off. And Julian Lopetegui will definitely have his game plan for this and and he'll he'll have his team set up in a way to combat it. 
Mm. There were some very shaky moments for Sevilla against uh, United, and, and certainly they can't count on uh, their opposition defending in quite the same manner that uh, Lindelof and company did on this occasion. What was the reaction in, in Spain to them getting through to the final? Well, obviously they're the only Spanish team that have that have been left in Europe after a pretty disastrous week, and they've been an absolutely fantastic representative of La Liga, and they have been for the past 10 or 15 years, because Sevilla are really the team who show that outside of the riches of Barcelona and the two Madrid teams, there's talent there really is talent right throughout La Liga and they can continually sort of transmit that onto the European stage again and again. And they've won 25 of the last 26 Europa League knockout ties now. And that's a fairly incredible stat. And Spanish teams as well, they're confident in finals. There's, there's this, this stat going back to 2001 when Alaves lost to Liverpool and Valencia got beaten by Bayern Munich in the final. Since that year, there have been 14 finals in the Champions League and Europa League between Spanish teams and non-Spanish teams. And the Spanish teams have won all 14 games. So it's a fairly phenomenal streak. And yes, it's going to be another, it's going to be another tough challenge for Sevilla to continue that. But again, the most recent Europa League final was against Liverpool in 2016. They were, they were pretty big underdogs going into that. And Sevilla had actually finished that La Liga campaign in seventh. This is a much, much stronger outfit. So yeah, slight underdogs are against a very good side. But I mean, this team know how to win. And they're 20 games unbeaten in all competitions. I think they've won eight in their last nine. So I mean, they're, they're just, they, they've clicked at just the right time and, and they can perform on the big stage. Wow. What, what worrying, worrying words there for Interisti. James, the net has only been looking so professional. I guess if you've been watching them for a while, you, you're still waiting for that inter-DNA to kind of bust free <laughs> from Conte's discipline at just the wrong moment. But what are your thoughts about the final? Well, I think uh, two teams trying to out-underdog each other uh, after listening uh, to Colin there because uh, Conte's been very much talking up uh, Sevilla's experience and their record in this competition. It doesn't matter that they've changed so many players from one season to another. Um, they just know how to get it done in the Europa League. And already saying that this season has been a success, regardless of whether they, they win the trophy or not. But I think what's curious about Inter is that, you know, maybe one of the reasons they kind of lost their way or maybe at least lost consistency um, towards the end of last season in the league was Conte doing his damnness to try and integrate Christian Eriksen into the team, which meant moving away from the 3-5-2 that had worked for him and playing a kind of 3-4-1-2 and he's just abandoned that um, and he's gone a bit more conservative you know he's brought Diego Godin back into the team he's brought uh, Danilo D'Ambrosio who can play right centre back or right wing back um, to play on the right side um, as well so and that seems to have just given the team a little bit more balance um, and, and, a, and a better platform to go forward and allow Lukaku and Lautaro Martinez to um, just pick their spots and do what they do best. And you know, I think that's why Inter have suddenly hit form. I mean, they're unbeaten in, uh, well, they've won their last uh, six games and they seem to have got better and better um, as this competition has gone on. So I think it's a really hard, hard game to call this and uh, it, should be, it should be a good final because of that. Mm, beyond the fact that Diego Carlos will concede a penalty, it's really hard to know <laughs> how this will go. Is Lucas Ocampos going to be okay with his knee, Colin? Yeah, it's, he's, a, he's a fitness type going into this, and we've spoken before about how big a threat Ocampos is and 
how, how how good a season he's had at Sevilla, and he's somebody that really gives him a lot of energy in attack. He's he's a threat from set pieces. He works the channels quite well. He's direct, and he's somebody that gives opposition teams a lot of problems. But again, Sevilla, they're going to be hoping to get him fit. I think they are confident that he's going to make the game, but as we saw, he went off of a knock. So it could be a blow, but Sevilla do have a lot of options up front. Uh, Munir uh, could come on and cause problems. Obviously, Luke de Jong, who's been much derided at times this season, but he, even he got his goal, the crucial goal in the semi-final. And it's interesting because he usually has actually come up in the big occasions this year. He scored... He scored the winner in the derby at Betis earlier in the season too. So they've got a lot of different attacking options and Sevilla are one of those teams and I suspect they're quite similar in the sense that they've got threats all over the pitch. They're, they're a team who are a threat from set pieces, who can defend set pieces quite well too. It's, so as James said, this is a really, really tough game to call just because both teams are in such good form. Both teams seem to have a really sort of settled and cohesive team at the moment. I really find it difficult to, to call a winner. And again, it's probably a question of just how well Sevilla can handle Inter's front two. Mm. Do you think it's going to be a good game? I think so. I think uh, I think having watched the, the games of Sevilla in the Europa League over the past ten days or so, they've they've been entertaining. Sevilla are a team who do like to take the initiative. They they do play with intensity, and it's a little bit of a contrast to how Barcelona performed recently, whereby they just can't deal with a pressing formation. Sevilla are savvy on the European stage and. And again, Julian Lopetegui is a coach who, who likes to play his high defensive line, who likes to, to take the initiative and, and to really get a foothold in the game. And, and usually it works quite well. So again, it's such a hard one to call. And the midfield battle is going to be, going to be crucial. Ever Benega, who's been fantastic in, in the past couple of games, is, are they going to allow him to control the game? Is he, are they going to allow him to play it at his tempo? Obviously, he actually had a stint at Inter after he left Sevilla in 2016, which didn't really work out. But... This is going to be his last game for Sevilla, no matter what. And it's probably going to be the last game for a number of other of these players. We've talked about Sergio Reguilón, who returns to Real Madrid. is probably likely to go to England at this point. And Diego Carlos is another one with, with his future up in the air, Lucas Acampos. So, yeah, it, it could be could be the last game for a number of these players. And, and they'll really want to give it one, one big sign-off. Yeah, absolutely. Will it be six from six for the Sevillanos? Or will Inter officially be back? We will find out on... Friday evening. Many thanks, Colin, for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me on the show, James. Daniel, as the neutral in this, you've heard the arguments. What do you think is going to happen? <sighs> Head says Inter, heart says severe is, is the honest answer. Um, I think uh, Colin alluded to it, but the space that not just Lautaro Martinez, but also Barella could find in behind those, those wing-backs... If they find that space and Lukaku is able to stay central, then then I think they win the game. There was periods in the first half against Shakhtar where he was getting Lukaku was getting really frustrated at the at how far from him into a playing the game. I think, and in the second half, Shakhtar capitulated and he was much happier. If they re- replicate the second half, I think they win. Um, but it's just that it's that sense of the romance with Sevilla, with the players leaving, and this is their competition that kind of makes you yearn for a, for one more night of that. I mean, as Daniel being the neutral, uh, James, I think it's it's worth pointing out something that was highlighted on Italian TV uh, this evening, which is that, um, yeah, it's not the first time that the Premier League hasn't had a representative in uh, the Europa League final or the Champions League final. But it's kind of quite curious that you've got representatives from all the other top five leagues in each of the final. You know, So you've got Italy and Spain in the Europa League, 
and you've got France and Germany in the Champions League. That's not something that is is ordinary. It feels uh, Fabio Capello was going Brexit, Brexit on Sky Italia. Um, right. So there you go. But, but 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 last year all four finalists were. Yeah, I think it, what it does show is that our inevitably knee-jerk reactions to things happening in a single season is are exactly that. That these things don't even go in cycles; they just they just fluctuate from season to season to season. And I don't think next season it'll be much easier for the Premier League with the kind of semi-ridiculous schedule that teams are going to be have to have to go through. It's got to be a German winner next season with thirty-four league games. That's a very good point, Daniel. Okay, well, in a second or two, we'll be hearing about yet more European drama to come. But first off, here's Lee Price from Paddy Power. Thank you. Hello, listener. I hope you, like me, are getting giddy for the Sevilla Cup final. And it'd be hard to back against the Spanish team winning it for the 300 second time, wouldn't it? Unless, of course, you work on the Paddy Power trading floor. That's because we actually make into the favourites. They're 11 to 10 to win inside 90 minutes and odds on to lift the trophy. They'll be spearheaded, no doubt, by any number of former Premier League stars. I honestly thought it was a joke when someone told me they'd signed Victor Moses, and I'm still not convinced it isn't. But the big man on campus, clearly, is Romelu Lukaku. He is 7-5 to to score any time, as he has in every single Europa League game into have played this season. Or he can get 4-1 to he scores last. Sevilla, on the other hand, they are in this game after all, are priced at a generous 12-5 to to win the match, or 23-10 to to force extra time. It's always risky writing them off. If you do fancy them, their best bet for a goal, we think, is Lucas Ocampos. That winger priced at 11-5 to to score any time. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, if you've enjoyed the eight-team, one-legged knockout action in Germany and Lisbon and are keen for UEFA to do it all over again... Good news. This Friday, the Women's Champions League starts its season finale. And yes, it's the same format. Eight teams, this time in nine knockout days, all in the Basque country. I'm excited and I know nothing about it. Luckily, Katie Wyatt from The Telegraph does and she joins us now. Katie, thank you for joining us. Great looking tournament. Definitely, yeah. I think it's going to be a very strange and bizarre tournament with it being single lead ties and quite insular and just done over a few days and be a bit of a festival of football just to happen in such a short period of time but it's such a a variety of teams and such a strong collection of teams and some really nice narratives to have the underdogs in Glasgow City and then the six-time champions in Lyon and Arsenal um, going to kind of try and secure a Champions League spot for next year by winning the whole thing so there's a really nice collection of stories and a collection of teams with really different goals and aspirations I think. First off, Leon, can they be stopped? It's such a difficult question. Um, Leon's players all give the very politically correct answer of oh there's been more investment in the game this year and there's a, as teams are pumping more money and it becomes harder and harder for us to retain our crown in Europe but then you look at the demolition of Barcelona in the Champions League final last year and you sort of think my gosh this is a really special team and a wonderful team and the team to beat but you can also have the caveat of that Barcelona team were probably not expected to be at that point and unexpected um, Champions League finalists I think um, Chelsea are probably the best example of that in terms of they're not in the competition this year but last year really really pushed them close and, and gave Leon a really tough time of it on their home soil so I think that there are ways to get around them and to beat them but I think it's going to be a massive 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 test for anyone who comes up against them 
Right. Arsenal are England's only official representatives, but Leon are kind of a surrogate England team. Definitely, yeah. They've got Lucy Bronze, who is among the best players in the world, if not the best players in the world, and very familiar to England fans who will remember if they followed the World Cup, that Norway game where she just ran the show from start to finish and was just a really exciting player to watch and a player who's really redefining what it means to be a fullback in the women's game. Um, Nikita Paris, who moves in from Manchester City, the WSL's all-time top scorer, the crown that she achieved last year. Um, she's really finding her feet in there now. Jodie Taylor, who's just moved in. Um, and played her first game in the Coupe de France final last week, so as well as Alex Greenwood. Um, so there's a whole sort of England contingent there. They're the team that I think that Lionesses fans will probably watch and root for even more than Arsenal, just because it's kind of like a melting pot of all the best players in the world, and particularly really, really strong England players as well. Mm. Well, uh, uniquely, uh, Leon will be facing Bayern on Saturday. Chances on revenge after what happened to the boys? Um, I think so, yeah. It's really, really interesting because I think that a lot of people have sort of been jokingly saying, oh, are Leon, is men going to copy the women and do really well in the Champions League? And is that where they're getting their inspiration from? And I think when people say things like that, it just kind of underlines how much of a trailblazing team Leon are because their chairman was sort of the first person to invest serious money in women's football in France and PSG have stepped up and stepped on board now. But that when he did it, there wasn't kind of a clear vision or structure for it. And I think a lot of people in France reacted with, why are you doing that? Why are you putting the money in there? And I think he was the only person who could sort of see the potential of it, if you like. And I think when you see just how dominant the women's team are, albeit there is a lot less money in the women's game, so arguably it's easier to dominate that than it is in men's football. I think it's a real template and probably a real point of inspiration for people in the men's team because I know that there is quite a lot of overlap and that they do um, share meals at the training ground together and things like that. So it probably is um, something that when it is probably more safe for them to not have isolated training sessions and to spend a bit more time outside of the bubbles of their individual teams probably is a point of comparison and discussion between them. Well, four straight uh, titles in the Champions League for Lyon. Uh, meantime, Arsenal will be taking on PSG. Atletico Madrid will be kicking things off on Friday, uh, we hope, against Barcelona. The, the doubt there being that they've had five uh, positive results for COVID-19. Mm, it was slightly shocking news. Um, at the moment, the players are all asymptomatic and the club was saying that they're immediately gone into quarantine and followed all of the measures like that. And they, at the moment, are kind of safe, in inverted commas, safe to compete, given they have, I think it's 13 players is the minimum that you've got to have before you UEFA kick you out of the competition and then your game's voided and it, it's treated as though the other team beat you 3-0. Um, but it is an interesting match-up because... Tony Duggan is probably the one to watch in that game, who is everyone will know plays for England and played for Barcelona last year and played in the Champions League final, the Champions League final that they lost against Lyon and has moved to Atletico um, Madrid this season and says it's a club that's a little bit more up her street and a style that she's a little bit more familiar with, a bit more, a bit less pragmatic compared to Barcelona. So I think any time a player revisits their old club and is kind of already well acquainted with the relationships in that team and the style in that team, it's a really going to be a really interesting matchup to see whether that move pays off for her in that game. Mm. And also on Friday, a huge mismatch with Glasgow City, who you mentioned, taking on a side who, am I right in saying, are kind of regarded as the second best in, in Europe, Wolfsburg? Yeah, pretty much. I think that it's a whole sort of strong pack there, but with Wolfsburg are consistently up there. And, and I think especially... 
um, in the days before England were consistently getting teams in the Champions League, they kind of had a gap where they were struggling to compete in, in Europe. They, they were the kind of lead, one of the leading lights at that point. And I think the tricky thing for Glasgow is that monetary-wise and financial-wise, they are the underdogs. Um, but it was also a little bit touch and go as to whether they were going to what their training was going to look like because for a long time the coronavirus ruling in Scotland was you need to be testing twice a week and a lot of Scottish clubs were saying well we just can't do that because how much tests were going to cost at that time and having to do it as often as they were being asked to do um, was just a really really big challenge for them financially but since the benefactors and the people making the donations have come on board that's really sort of changed their outlook and their fortunes with regards to that but I think it will be a big test for them and they will know very much that they're the underdogs and it's just about whether being in a one-off game and, and all the things that go with that as a single leg tie maybe then gives them a little bit more to aim for because in previous seasons it's been a case of they've gone into the second leg already three or four nil down and you're just praying for pride at that point so I think that the single leg ties really changes the whole dynamic for them potentially. The only part-timers left in the competition uh, if they were to upset Wolfsburg that would be massive. It would be huge, yeah, because I think it's very difficult to undersell the extent of the part-time, full-time gap in women's football and the impact that it has. Because, I mean, we saw it with when Manchester United with the full-time team in the championship in their first year, coming back as a professional side. And Spurs were just a few points behind them, but when they played each other, that Man United were three or four nil up. But with sort of half an hour still to go, and it's just that fitness gap um, and the way, and the sort of speed and the way that players respond and their reaction time is just so much quicker when you have you know players who are training on a full-time schedule who don't have to worry about work who don't have to fit um, training in on top of other jobs and they've got the proper strength and conditioning coaches they've got the analysis teams that can really devote all of their time to picking apart strengths and weaknesses and stuff like that so it is a huge thing for women's football and I think that the faster we get to closing that gap is probably going to be better for um, a lot of the clubs involved because it's a little bit like you saw with England and Scotland when they played each other at the World Cup that this was a Scotland team that was full of a lot of part-time players who had just been had, had grants from the Scottish FA and the Scottish Government to move on to a full-time training schedule in the months leading up for the World Cup and it just sort of wasn't enough really that you needed a sort of years and years and years of doing it full-time and having the proper environment and having that sort of single-minded long thing to focus on without other outside pressures so I think that you are going to see that disparity play out but it's obviously very gutting to say because Glasgow City are a wonderful club with a lot going for them and you hope that they will be able to sort of pull off a, a huge upset and become a really really good store in the Champions League this year. Mm, that's Friday and let's go Barca is a huge game obviously that's also on Friday Arsenal PSG and Lyon against Bayern on Saturday which of the quarterfinals are you most looking forward to? Oof. Um, Arsenal PSG because Formiga at 42 is a phenomenal player and I think the oldest player to ever play in the Women's Champions League. I think she's done that already. Um, so probably watching her, I just always like watching her because just the admiration of being 42 and still playing at the really, really elite level of the women's game. Um, I think Atletico Barca is probably going to be the closest one. But I think as well, any time that you get to see that Lyon team um, and particularly if you get to see that Lyon team live is a real real pleasure and privilege to watch some of the players in that team so there's three that I'm looking forward to but probably for very different reasons I think Katie Wyatt from The Telegraph Friday at five it all kicks off you're looking forward to that Daniel yeah I am actually uh, Lyon are 
an incredible team to watch, not not least because of the, the English contingent that, that Katie mentioned, but just so dominant. And um, it sounds very trite thing to say, but the fact that they're playing by Munich feels like to the, to the armchair supporter, it gives it that little extra edge. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll watch that one. Katie actually did a lovely piece with Caroline Graham Hansen, which features a fantastic, or at least links to a fantastic uh, piece of uh, video about her doing keepy uppies up an entire building. Did you watch that, Daniel? Yeah, I did. It's yeah. um, and it's a good interview as well. It really is. I, I quite often find when you interview um, women footballers that they are much more prepared to talk about things outside the game as a mm-hmm. kind of placing what they're doing into some sort of context, which I suspect reflects on the the kind of lack of superstardom and money in the game. Very, very possibly. Excellent. Well, Friday, a big day in football then. Uh, that gets underway. We've got the Europa League final and the Totally Football Show Summer Special will return straight after Sevilla Inter. We're going to take a break Thursday night, although I'll be there on Thursday morning with the the usual Club 2020 Daily, in which I'll be joined by footballers Chelsea Grimes and Lucy Bronze out of that super strong Leon team. So that'll be nice. And then you guys are joining me on Friday morning on BT's 11 o'clock mid-morning football matters. That is correct, James. Nice one. Okay, don't forget there's always a YouTube link if you're not able to catch it live at 11. Still there for you. Whenever you feel the need. Anyway, that's it for tonight. So many thanks, Daniel Story and James Horncastle, and to Katie Wyatt and Colin Miller, and to producer Charlie, and of course you, the listener. We'll be back on Saturday morning. Do hope you join us then. An hour from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.